Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. If we haven't uh, gotten the chance to meet or hang out a little bit, my name is Aaron. Uh, I have the joy of getting to be part of the staff team here at Wellspring. It's really good to be with you this morning. Before we get into our time in the scriptures, if you're a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, we'll love to have you go to my left in the back here. There's some amazing folks over here that would love to spend some time with you. So feel free to make your way over that direction. The stampede, the exit. <laughs> I love it. love hearing the sound of the little feet move, pitter-patter across. It's good. Well, like I said this morning, my name's Aaron. It's really good to be with you. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges. So first five books of the Bible, it's the seventh book actually in your Bible. So we'll have some of the, the verses up on the screen as well. But we're beginning our kind of little mini-series, if you will, through the book of Judges this morning for those of you who've been around for any length of time, we've spent most of 2021 going through the Old Testament. So we've been kind of looking at major sections or major chunks throughout the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. And this morning we find ourselves beginning the book of Judges. Now, fair warning, over about the next month or so, the book of Judges, if someone were to make it into a movie, it would be probably rated R. It's a pretty gnarly book. And it's somewhat depressing in some places, too. If you ever read the book before, there's a ton of violence. Israel keeps just going in the same habits and patterns full of sin. And just, you know, they say in one moment, God, we love you. Forgive us. God rescues them and, and you know, shows them mercy and grace. And then, like, a chapter later, Israel's just doing their own silly, dumb stuff once again. So all that to say, this book is, you know, in some ways can be a downer. And you're like, why are we going to spend time in the book of Judges over the next few weeks? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know, have you, how many, just to maybe kind of start this off a little bit here. How many of you are the kinds of people that when you're watching your favorite TV show or movie, you, you know, you go on Wikipedia or the Google or even fast forward to the end, you want to know what happens at the end, and then you go back and rewatch it? How many of you are those kinds of people? There's a few of you. Most of us are pretty holy, though, so that's, that's good. <laughs> There we go. Well, I, you know, there's all these kinds of movies that once you get to the ending and you understand the ending, you can go back and rewatch it. Like, you know, Bruce Willis is like The Sixth Sense. Remember that movie from, you know, a few years ago, right? And so you go back and you watch it with fresh eyes like, oh, this makes sense in light of the ending. And kind of something similar happens with the book of Judges and really quite, quite a few books actually in the Old Testament, really the whole Bible. You know, the last line in the book of Judges is this. Judges 2125. In those days, there was no king, and everyone was doing right or whatever they wanted in their own eyes. The end. That's how the story ends. And this is actually the fourth time within just a few chapters that the author of the book of Judges kind of has this line. And he's, the author's trying to tell you something. That however we're to read this book or look at this book, something is wrong in the world of, of Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And they don't have a king. And so with that sort of frame in mind of looking at the end of the book, we're then able to kind of read through the rest of the book of Judges and go, oh, this is making sense. Why Israel's doing what they're doing? You have a bunch of people just kind of defining good and evil for themselves, doing right and wrong according to what they want to do. And there's no king. There's no one to truly actually lead them. Right? So that's kind of a, a, an important sort of detail as we look at the book of Judges. Now, here's another thing that's really important as well. 
when you go to the New Testament, some of the writers of the New Testament kind of give us instruction or sort of guidance on how to actually look at and apply and read the Old Testament scriptures. For example, Paul in Romans 15 says, what was written in former days, referring to the scriptures, was written so that through the steadfast and encouragement of the scriptures and the teaching therein, that we might have hope. And so when Paul is referencing what was written in former times, he's referencing the scriptures. He's referencing what we would call the Old Testament. And for Paul, there's two very important things that for him at least, the Old Testament scriptures provide. Instruction, number one, or teaching, and hope. Instruction and hope. And I think it's those two sort of big ideas that as we look at this morning, the book of Judges, that I want to kind of use that as a lens to look at these first kind of few verses or few chapters, if you will. What might the story of the book of Judges, as depressing and as gory and as kind of crazy as it is, what might the book of Judges have to say to us to instruct us and give us hope? Does that make sense? So it's kind of the, the roadmap of where we're going to be going this morning. And so as we look at this, Let's start with verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Judges. The writer says this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord. Now let's pause right there. This is actually really interesting because what's going to happen is that as you continue on through the first chapter, in particular the first 18 verses of the book of Judges, we're going to find that Israel, on one hand, seems to be doing you know, as best as they possibly can to follow and obey and listen to the voice of God. They're trying, I think they're, they're, they have a right heart, a right posture to a certain extent. And so you see this here in verse 1. They're inquiring of the Lord. Lord, what should we do? What direction should we go? It's your voice we want to listen to. And as we think about this this morning, there's something that I, I want to kind of say from the front end here to talk about what it, what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus a follower of Jesus, in a cultural moment where there's so many competing things vying for our attention and speaking into our lives. Because by the time we get to the end of, of the, the section here, in the middle of chapter 2, what we end up finding is that Israel, on one hand, sure, they're maybe saying, yes, Lord, we're going to inquire of you. We're going to seek to listen to you. But by the end of chapter 2, the, 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 the writer of the book of Judges gives us basically a summary of what's going to end up happening through the rest of the book. On one hand, they're going to go through this cycle. They're going to be in, in a place of sin, doing their own thing. They're going to cry out to the Lord, Lord, save us. The Lord's going to send a deliverer, going to send a judge. God's going to bring rescue in a, in a time of peace. And they're just going to go back in that same cycle over and over and over again where the oppression and the sin only increases and the time of peace and prosperity begins to slowly decrease over time in the book. And so the question I, I kind of have for us this morning is how we, as followers of Jesus today, might be the kinds of people who diligently listen to the voice of God in the midst of sort of this cycle of chaos, this cycle of maybe what we might call just kind of cultural Christianity. Of on one hand, yes, God, we, we love you, we're for you, but then when things get hard or things kind of don't go our way, we're back to our old patterns. So kind of the summary that I might have for us this morning is simply this. Diligent listening, intergenerational discipleship, we'll talk about that in a moment, and deep repentance are vital ingredients to make healthy disciples 
that push against the cycle of cultural Christianity. Diligent listening, intergenerational discipleship, we'll talk about that in a second, and deep repentance, we'll talk about that at the end, are vital ingredients to make healthy disciples that push against the cycle of cultural Christianity. All right, so let's start with, with diligent listening to begin with. Right? Diligent listening. Verse 1 again. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. I hereby give you the land into his hand. And Judah, that's the tribe, said to his brother Simeon, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we might fight against the Canaanites. Then I too will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. You know, like I was just saying, the first 18 verses, you keep reading about how Israel is, you know, doing their best to diligently listen to the voice of God. But as the chapter continues into chapter 1, in verse 19, 27, 29, 30, and 33, no less than six times, the author of chapter 1 makes it abundantly clear that Israel does not listen to the voice of Yahweh. That Israel does not actually obey what Yahweh, the Lord, has actually spoken to them. And so what you have in this early chapter of the book of Judges is this picture of, in verse 1, God, we are inquiring. We want to hear your voice. But no actual follow-through. Or at best, maybe like half follow-through. And so the question becomes then, okay, what's, what's the, the writer trying to tell us? What's the writer trying to communicate in this moment? Because by the time you get to chapter 2, the, God just comes full steam ahead and just says, you are not obeying me at all. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, the angel of Yahweh went up to Gilgal and said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I led you into the land I promised you to your ancestors. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. Notice, Yahweh is saying, I have been faithful to you. I have been with you. I have been the one that has been steadfast and immovable and have kept my promises to you. Verse 2, you are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You are to tear down their altars. But look at this. But you have not obeyed me. Now, what's this have to do with listening? Here's the, this, is, this is really important, actually. Because in Hebrew, the same word for obey and hear and listen are all the same word. To listen is to hear, is to obey, and to obey is to hear, is to listen. Shema is the Hebrew word. And so for Israel, to say on one hand, I'm going to listen to you, but then not actually follow through, God would say, you're not actually listening to me. You're not actually hearing me. So on one hand, we can't say as followers of Jesus, God, I'm going to hear your voice. I want to hear your voice. But then actually not have the intent of heart to actually follow through and obey what God says. The two go together. You know, this week I was traveling for school and I was coming home. I was in the Portland airport and there was this kind of very confusing, it was confusing at least to me, all these signs about like what gate and terminal to go to. And my goal when I'm at the airport is just to get through security as fast as I can. And so I'm not paying attention at all to any of these signs. I know they're trying to tell me something, but I'm like, it'll be fine. I'll just get through security and then find what gate I'm supposed to get at after that. And so I go through security, you're waiting in line, you're doing, you know, the whole security thing, the shoes, the laptop, you know, the bags, all that sort of stuff. You get through security, and then I pull up my phone, look at the app, you know, they'll ask app, tell me what gate I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to be at gate D something. And I look up, 
And then there's these big signs that say gates A and B over here, and then gates like C, D, and E. You need to go to the other side of the airport and re-enter security. <laughs> but they had been telling me this, right? The airport voice had been speaking over the intercom for like every two minutes, like telling me. I was hearing the voice of the airport supervisor or whatever telling this over and over, but I was not actually listening. And you have to like circle back and do the whole thing. So I went through security twice. So there you go. But the point is simply this. We often do this, right? We even sometimes say this with our kids. You're not hearing me, right? And it's something very similar that's happening here in Judges chapter 1. That Israel maybe on one hand is technically audibly hearing maybe the sounds come out or whatever. From Joshua, the leaders, or God himself. But are they actually hearing? Are they actually listening? The text seems to indicate no. By the time you get to verse 20 of chapter 2, God's pretty ticked. Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their ancestors, and have what? Not obeyed. Same word, you could say, have not listened, or have not heard my voice. And this is key, because this pattern is only going to continue through the book of Judges. Israel not hearing, listening, or obeying. Again, same idea, same concept, same word. That's the first thing, diligent listening. That's key. That's a major factor in our discipleship to Jesus. Diligent listening, intergenerational discipleship, and deep repentance are vital ingredients to make healthy disciples to push against the cycle of cultural Christianity. Let's go with intergenerational discipleship now, that second, that second point. Where am I getting this? Well, look at the text. When you get into chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 kind of speak of and recount the death of Joshua. This is like the, the main leader at the time of Israel. Joshua is going to pass away, and then we read this in verse 10. Moreover, the whole generation was gathered to their ancestors, and another generation grew up after them who did not know Yahweh, did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Again, this is all part of kind of the introductory frame that the author is putting forth here in Judges. And the author wants us to know that as we begin to see this cycle of kind of sin and like, oh, God, forgive me, and God delivers, and then they kind of go back their own ways. One of the key things that was plaguing Israel from the beginning of, of the book of Judges was the fact that the, this new generation who is now going to live in the promised land, apparently, according to verse 10, did not know Yahweh or the things that Yahweh had done for Israel. Think about that for a second. Now, on one hand, is the author saying something like, you know, they had no idea, like, the name of Yahweh? Like, were, were they never told the story of the Exodus and the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea? I'm sure they, like, heard the stories. Again, back to the idea of hearing. But it seems like they haven't actually taken these things to heart. They haven't actually appropriated it. They haven't actually taken them home, if you will. Because we have here, when the, when the text says, they did not know Yahweh. It's the word there for not just like intellectual, I can ace it on a test kind of knowledge, but deep experiential sort of knowledge. 
I did not actually experience or know or encounter Yahweh. I did not actually have a, of a living, abiding relationship with Yahweh and have a, of a worldview and a, and a life framed by what God is and what he's done. That's what the text seems to be saying here in verse 10. And to think about this perhaps even in our own modern context. C.S. Lewis, you know, from a generation ago, talked about this phrase called chronological snobbery. And it was this idea where people think like whatever's the newest or the most relevant today or the most in or the information that's the latest is then equated with the greatest. And everything from the past, oh, we know better now. I mean, we got iPhones and Google and all these Siri can tell me whatever I need to know now, right? And so everything from the past, chronological snobbery, everything from the past, oh, we're just kind of snobbish about that. And that was a generation, at least a generation ago, C.S. Lewis talked about it. Think about what he would say even today, right? How it's so easy sometimes in our modern cultural moment to just think, you know what? The youngest, the hippest, the coolest, the freshest thing, that's where truth is found. That's where life is found. And we have to be careful, kind of just for a moment, just speaking to maybe my own age demographic a little bit. We need to be careful of this mindset that what has happened in the past or the generations that have come before us does not have real, vibrant truth and life to offer for us today. We need the wisdom from ages past. We need the traditions and the stories and the truth that people who have lived longer, who have followed Jesus longer than you or I, to speak into our lives. And the same, if maybe I can just speak to maybe folks a little bit older, that, that you would recognize that God has a, a plan and a purpose and that you are not done. And that God has something for you to pass on to folks like myself and so many others that are in my sort of age group. And that we, that's one of the, one of the many things I love about this church. I look across this room right now. It's probably fairly evenly split as far as 20s, 30s, 40s, up in 50s, 60s. The age, it, it's very diverse age-wise here. And that is a gift. That is a, a, something that God has blessed us with. But the challenge is that we wouldn't just be a group of people here on Sunday morning that kind of sit, you know, scattered across, but our lives would begin to more and more be integrated with one another. That we would recognize that we would not want something like this to happen. And that we would see and understand and that for us as younger people would have the humility to receive the wisdom that has Right here in this room, that those relationships and those stories, I love hearing the stories of how this church, you know, was, you know, decades ago, of meeting with, with Paul Sr. every so often, just hearing those stories of what God has been doing in the past. And that gives us hope and, and just like a, just this sense of expectation that God has been faithful, that people in this room have experienced and witnessed God's faithfulness in this place longer than I've been alive. And how foolish sometimes our cultural moment is to just think that if you have, you know, a cool Instagram account or, or just a cool idea or not to dog any of that stuff, but just you kind of get what I'm saying, Right? We sometimes just have this knee-jerk reaction that it's where the, the newest and the youngest and the coolest, that's where truth is to be found. That's simply not the case biblically. 
the reason Israel gets in trouble, one of the main reasons Israel gets in trouble is the failure to listen, to appropriate the wisdom that has been passed down from generation to generation. And that's why intergenerational discipleship is so key. The next point, though, if we have diligent listening, intergenerational discipleship, the last little point here, deep repentance. And here's what I mean simply by this. By the time you get to Judges chapter 2, verse 11, the author is going to give you about a paragraph of basically a summary of what's going to happen for the rest of the book. And I've already kind of mentioned this. I think I'll have a little kind of graphic, a circular graphic to show us what this looks like. Israel's going to be in a place of sin at the very top. And that sin is going to lead to this kind of duration or this time of oppression from some foreign, you know, country or leader. Whether it's the Midianites or the Philistines, another opposing group, because of Israel's sin, is going to come in and kind of have Israel in this moment or this state of oppression. And they're stuck. They're in bondage to some foreign group or power. But then, after, you know, a number of years or a season or whatever, Israel kind of comes to their senses, if you will. And they come to this moment, Israel does, throughout the book, where they cry out, God, we are sorry. Forgive us. We repent. Save us. And God, out of his mercy and his compassion, sends these rulers. That's why the ruler or judge, that's where the book, the name, the book gets its name. God sends these judges. Now, don't think like someone with like a robe and like a court with the, you know, what are the, what's the hammer thing called? A gavel? Gavel, right? Is that right? Gavel. Don't think that. It's just it's simply the idea of a ruler. Not a king, but some sort of, you know, regional official or ruler that God sends. People that you might be familiar with. Deborah, Barak, Samson, Gideon. These folks that we're going to look at in more detail in the coming weeks. And so God sends these rulers or these judges, and the, God, through this leader, brings a time of peace, of tranquility, a time of prosperity, and God brings deliverance. And we're like, yes, this is what we want. But then what happens? Israel just kind of relaxes. They go back to their own habits kind of just do their own thing again. And the cycle just repeats and repeats and repeats until you get to the very end of the book. And the author says, there was no king in Israel, for everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, the end. How's that for some encouragement this morning, right? <laughs> now, again, ask yourself the question, why in God's sovereignty and wisdom do we have a book like this in our scriptures? Think about what Paul had to say. These scriptures were written so that we might be instructed and we might have hope. And in particular, let's focus on this idea of what I was just mentioning, this idea of deep repentance. What I mean is simply this. Paul in the New Testament will talk about kind of worldly repentance or worldly grief or worldly sorrow. And it's this idea where you might say like, God, I'm sorry. God, I, I want to change, but really deep down, it's not godly, deep repentance. It's kind of like this, like the, you know in Monopoly, they have like that get out of jail free, you know, spot. And Monopoly takes years to play, I know, right? That's why we don't play it anymore. But there's always that get out of jail free. I always think of that get out of jail free moment of kind of what Israel's doing in the book of Judges. 
It's like, I just want to get out of the hardship. God, I, I promise I'll change if you just come and da-da-da-da-da. But does the change actually happen for Israel? It doesn't seem like it does. And so the question that I think the book of Judges is going to press into us as we kind of journey these next few weeks is this idea of true, genuine, deep repentance. Repentance that opens yourself up to God. I, I, I want you to do that deep work of change in my life. That even when it perhaps probably will even get tougher and harder, that God, I am willing to yield to you, to your instruction, to what you have for me. And I'm not just coming to you, God, for your benefits or just those moments where it will just feel right or feel good for me and my convenience, but God, I am coming to you because your way is good and it's true and it's right. And it's there in your presence that life is found. And that when I just turn back from you and do my own thing, I just end up in a cycle like this. And so for just the next few moments, as we kind of land the plane a little bit here, kind of just done a little bit of an overview for some key moments here in Judges 1 and 2. But let's think about, in particular, this cycle in our everyday life. And the frame that I was kind of talking about earlier was this idea that sometimes one way to look at something like this is what sometimes people might call cultural Christianity. This idea where I want Jesus for the good stuff, but the moment he actually demands true repentance of my life, then I'm checking out, doing my own thing. But if we're honest, that's not actually genuine discipleship to Jesus. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 30s and 40s wrote about this idea of cheap grace. Cheap grace, wanting, you know, basically, what, just kind of summarizing here, that he would want the benefits and the good things of Jesus, but with not the actual cost of discipleship. Of a deep turning and repenting back to him. And it's easy to think about when we look out into the landscape and look out into the culture, how easy it is to, on one hand, say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. Yes, Jesus, you're the way, the truth, and the life. But in those moments where we really turn back to him, are we really open for God to come in and do that deep work of healing and transformation in our lives? Or the moment it becomes inconvenient or difficult or hard or goes against my own personal preference, because that's what happens with Israel. They just turn and kind of do their own thing. And so to close, let me just kind of reframe this for us, for our moment, right now, today. Remember what Paul said. These things were written in former days, the scriptures, so that by them two things, right? We'd have instruction or teaching and hope. So let's think about this piece for a second. Instruction. What might a text like this have to say to us to be instructed in the way of Jesus? Well, think about this idea of, of listening. Right? We talked about this earlier. What does it look like for us today to diligently listen to the voice of God? To diligently slow down and pay attention. God, what are you saying? Not just what are you saying so that I can just hear it with my own ears audibly, but what are you saying so that I might follow and live and obey into that? Remember what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? The wise man the one who is a wise man hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Again, the hearing and the doing that go together. Or James, James chapter 1. 
Don't be like the man who, who hears the word but does not do it. For that person is like a man who looks into the mirror, turns away, and forgets what they look like. That doesn't work. That doesn't even make sense, right? But the one who is diligent listening, let me just simply ask you a question like this. Whose voice are we listening to? Whose voice are we paying attention to? Again, with so many different inputs and things just in a noisy culture, where is sort of our north star? Where is our sort of focus in our direction in our everyday life? Because it's easy, because Israel, living in this moment where there's all these conflicting idols and gods and cultures that are in competition for Israel's attention. And the same, honestly, is true for us. So many different ideas and stories and idols and opportunities to distract us from the way of Jesus. The question is very simple, but it's a, actually a profound one when you really think about it. Whose voice are you paying attention to? You know, really, honestly, for me, this, I would just kind of, you know, beating a dead horse a little bit here. But it comes down to, are we a people that are living into the storyline of Scripture? Hearing God's voice through his word. Becoming the kinds of people that are receiving God's life-giving words for us today. So whose voice are we paying attention to? One practical thing with that, I've said this before and I'll say it again. What is the, in, the first input you have maybe every morning? The idea of scripture before phone, I think it's really practical and it's really key. That phone has so, like, it's not all bad, but there's so many things on that little device that take us away from the person and goodness of Jesus. What if every morning or every evening, however, morning or evening person, you kind of fit that into your you know, personality or schedule. What if the first thing we woke up to was the voice of Jesus through his word? What would that do over the long term? Versus the voice of Instagram or email or YouTube or whatever notification that comes up. How would that reorient and shape our mind and heart over the course of a lifetime? The first voice early in the morning or in the, late into the evening, whatever it might be for you, would be the voice of Jesus through his word. Second piece, intergenerational discipleship. And this is just a very simple kind of practical question. Do you just have people that you hang out with only in your own age bracket? It's a very kind of easy diagnostic to kind of take, to kind of work through. When you kind of do your kind of hanging out with other people as followers of Jesus, is it just within the same group, within the same sort of decade or life stage? And just kind of be attuned to that, be aware of that. Again, as followers of Jesus, yes, I think it's appropriate and there's wisdom and there's a great place and a great time to be in certain kind of life stages together. It's kind of ironic and I get it. For those of you who know me, one of the, the two kind of main groups I kind of lead and kind of hang out with the most are actually age-based groups. Right? So our, our small group, is kind of all, we're all in the same sort of age group and then our young adults ministry, so I get that. There's a time and a place for that. But I will actually just push and challenge even more into that. That if that's the only space that we have is just with people with our own sort of age bracket, we miss out on opportunities to not only share wisdom with others, but to receive wisdom from others. Because honestly, if we're just in this echo chamber of like and like, we miss out on the beauty and the diversity that God has on offer. So I just think it's so important 
that as followers of Jesus, that our discipleship is intergenerational. That relationships are being formed and built. So I would just encourage you, for those of you who might be, you know, more seasoned and older and have the wisdom and have lived and served and followed Jesus for a number of decades, I want to, we want to receive from you. And for those of us who maybe are younger or newer to the faith and don't have as much experience, may I just simply challenge you to be open and humble, to recognize that we don't know everything. We don't have all of the answers. And that the gift that Wellspring is, again, so many things to love about this church, but just to highlight just this one aspect. The gift in this room of the variety of ages in this place. What would it look like if we took advantage of that? This isn't just a church for like hipsters and young 20s. This is a church for every age demographic. A church where we can all follow Jesus together over the course of a lifetime. Last one, simply this, this idea of deep repentance. And just simply asking the question, when was the last time you genuinely fell on your face and repented before God? Not from a place of shame or like utter despair, but from a place of receiving the forgiveness and the healing touch of Jesus. Think about this. You think about that cycle that we've been talking about. And sometimes we feel this in our own lives, that we feel like we're in this sort of cycle of just doing the same thing over and over. It's like a bad version of that Groundhog Day movie, right? And we're just stuck doing the same mistakes over and over and over again. You kind of have this moment of, God, am I ever going to change? Are things ever going to get better? Or am I just living the worst version of Groundhog Day imaginable? And so we get to this point of despair and defeat. And we think it's for the millionth time I've said that thing to my kid that I shouldn't have said. Or for the thousandth time I've just been short with that person. Or, and you kind of get in this, God, I can't get out of this cycle. And so for you, it actually isn't necessarily about you genuinely do want to change. You genuinely do want to grow and be transformed. What then? In those moments where we, we genuinely want to get out of this cycle, what do we do? What's the answer? Where, where do we turn? Where do we, where do we go in those moments? And I think part of it is simply this, that recognizing that all those times we might beat ourselves up, the thousandth time that I've said that thing or done that thing, is either an opportunity to just fall into more despair or it's another thousandth time to experience the grace and mercy of God in that moment. That every time that we might fall short, every time that we might just kind of do our own thing, is an opportunity to, yes, turn back to him and receive the mercy and the grace that 1 John 1, 9 says, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. These moments where we're stuck and caught are moments to turn back to him and experience the grace and the healing of Jesus. That's the portion of instruct. Let me just end with this idea of hope, right? Again, how does the book end? In those days, there was no king of Israel, and everyone was doing what? What was right in their own eyes. And you see that played out in this cycle. This cycle of just kind of continually doing whatever they want, not really turning back. And you end with the book of Judges with simply this. There's no king. Everyone's doing what they want. And so the question becomes, we need a king around here. Who's going to be that king? Who is going to be the one that actually gets us out of this vicious cycle 
of these habits and these patterns and these thoughts of just being stuck in my own sin and my own brokenness, being stuck not only individually but also corporately. How, who is going to be the one to deliver? And the book of Judges is pointing forward. It's getting you as the reader to say, we need not just some human ruler or some political whatever to come rescue us. We need a king that is above all else. Judges 21, the end of the book, is getting you, the reader, to say what we need around here is a king who actually can deliver us from the bondage and the broken patterns of sin in our lives. Jesus says in John 8, 34, whoever commits sin, whoever practices sin, is a slave to sin. That's some harsh upfront words there. This idea that someone can be practicing sin is not actually free. They're actually in this state of this circular bondage, not actually living a life of freedom. But Paul would say later on, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. But that, that's not freedom. Just go do whatever you want. That's not actually freedom according to the Bible. We have it backwards sometimes. We think freedom is doing whatever we want, but actually that definition of freedom gets you into the cycle of judges. This repetition of over and over and over being a slave to sin. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. That's not freedom to do whatever you want, but the freedom to contemplate or gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that God is transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. Where Paul in Galatians 5 will, will say to the church in Galatia, brothers and sisters, do not use your freedom to just do whatever you want. But you have been set free to follow or walk in step with the spirit. And so what the book of Judges is getting us to see is that it's Jesus, the giver of life, the one who comes into our broken mess, the one who comes into these cycles of bondage and slavery and decay and instills in us and gives us a path forward, a direction forward that we might not have hope in ourselves or what we can do or not do, but hope in the person of Jesus. You know, as we close here, I want to invite the worship team to to come up. And as we just spend these next few minutes worshiping and, and having this, this moment, we're going to get into a time of, of communion, of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus in our lives or for us. And thinking about for a moment that for so many of us, if we're honest, that it's easy to kind of get stuck in these cycles, these patterns of not truly being free. These cycles of, God, am I ever going to change? Are things ever going to be different or get better? I've just been thinking about this, this, that image of that cycle and how the book of Judges is gonna kind of replay that over and over again. But to, for us this morning, just thinking about that, that it seems to me that the heart of Jesus and the, and the work and the desire of the Spirit is that we would be set free from those patterns and those thoughts and those ideas that just continually enslave us in a circle over and over and over again. That the work of the Spirit, that the work that Jesus wants to bring is healing in life. Does that mean things are just going to automatically be easy and all your problems are going to go away? No. In this world, John 16, 33, you will, we will have tribulation, Jesus says. 
but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so it was in that moment, in that conversation, in the upper room, where Jesus was with his disciples, telling him, telling them about what was going to soon happen, that it's actually better that he departs because he would send the Spirit to live within us, that we might experience the freedom, the joy, the abundant life that Jesus said he came to bring. But that wasn't going to happen apart from his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus said earlier in the, the Gospel of John, he said in John 7, 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let the one who believes come to me, for out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But then John says, John said, Jesus said this about the Spirit, which had not yet been given. Because why? Jesus had not yet been glorified, had not yet been crucified on the cross. Why do I say all that? It's because of Jesus' sacrifice. It's because of Jesus' death on the cross that we have been given his spirit. Given the freedom and the power to live into the life that he's called us to live. Not to live into these cycles of brokenness again and again, but slowly but surely. From one degree of glory to the next, Paul says. Being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. And that all comes back, all comes back to the person of Christ. Jesus said with his disciples the night he was crucified, he had some bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took that bread and he dipped it into the wine and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood poured out so that sins may be forgiven. The sin that so easily entangles and snares and does not lead to freedom, but actually leads to bondage. Jesus came to break that cycle, break that power. And so for us this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come down the center aisle as the band plays. They'll have folks up here on the stage. as an opportunity to, with your body, get up and collectively together all come forward to say, Jesus, we need your power in our lives. You are our king. We submit our lives to you. We do not want to live life just doing what's right in our own eyes. We want the freedom that only you, King Jesus, can bring. So as you feel led, as a follower of Jesus, please come forward. We'd love to serve you, communion. There'll be people up here, and they'll say, the body of Christ broken for you. And as you dip the bread into the cup, they'll say, the blood of Christ shed for you. Jesus, we look to you now and we ask that you would help us. We ask for your mercy and your grace upon our lives. God, we ask for just a renewed sense of hope and encouragement. God, I pray that you would speak and that you would encourage us right now. God, for those of us who might be just in this moment feeling like they're just stuck, that that cycle is just real and it's thick and it's just unbearable, God, I pray that you would bring freedom right now. 
God, by the power of your spirit, would you unleash your love and forgiveness in this place? And that, God, for each of us here, that we would have genuine, deep repentance. God, that we would recognize the gravity and seriousness of sin. But God, that we would say with Paul, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So God, fill this place with your grace and mercy. We turn to you now. We love you. We pray these things in your name.